Since 1993, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. We have you covered for your holiday dinner parties. Now at Copenhagen, get 25% off up to eight dining chairs with your purchase of a new dining table. For more ways to save, visit our showroom on Breaker Lane or go to copenhagenliving.com. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the podcast about the people, places, and things we love about Austin. Our podcast is from the features staff at the Austin American Statesman, and we're sponsored by Copenhagen Furniture. I'm culture writer Joe Gross, and in this week's episode, I talk to Austin-based director Rick Roman Waugh about his new movie, Angel Has Fallen, the third film in the Fallen franchise. It stars Gerard Butler as Secret Service agent Mike Banning, who this time around is blamed for a crime he didn't commit. Waugh and I discussed why he lives in Austin, what he wanted to do with this film, and how PTSD can manifest in different ways for different people. care about is you're from Austin, Texas. I can't wait to get home. (laughs) (laughs) I've been away for so many months, I forget what my house looks like. Outstanding. Well, let me ask you about that. How how long have you lived in town? We've been there nine years now. Oh, wow. Okay. um, You know, know, I grew up in a very small town. Um, Basically, they just had a little general store and, um, you know, and then had been based in Los Angeles for a number of years um, because of the film business, right? You know, I was a I started in stunts and then came up through the ranks and, you know, and then as a writer and director. And so you, you go where your mainstay is, right, where your livelihood is. But luckily I'd reached a, a point in my career and my wife, Tanya, and I had two twin boys. And, you know, I wanted them to have the life that I had growing up. And, you know, Austin gives us that, you know, and mm-hmm. never knew about the bum rush to, to Austin, Texas. Never really paid attention to all that. But uh, hopefully, you know, we, we, it, it's, uh, it's our home. Um, we love it there and we'll never leave. Are you a California native? Originally, yeah. A very small town. Like, literally, like, the, the closest, like, major town was 20 minutes away. Nice. So I lived in the country, and, you know, and we live up, uh, up in the hill country, um, outside, just outside Austin, you know, mm-hmm. the same life and love it. Awesome. So you started in stunts, and um, you were a stunt, uh, stunt man for about 10 years, 15 years? Many, uh, I'm a little, little bit older than that now, but yeah, many, <laughs> many. Uh, I started at a very young age, um, um, as a, um, um, you know, before, before in my teens. Um, oh wow! Okay. My father was a professional stuntman for years. One of the one of the founding members of a group called Stunts Unlimited. And oh wow! We had so we we came up through the ranks. It was just the greatest learning place of filmmaking, up to figure out where you wanted your trajectory to be and. One of my true mentors was uh, Tony Scott, and I'd worked with uh, Jerry Bruckheimer uh, a number of movies, and they were they were gracious enough to let me ask the questions and find my place in the sandbox where I wanted to, you know where I wanted to dance. And you know, being in front of the camera was never my favorite thing, even as a stunt performer. Uh-huh. Um, I always liked uh, the guy you know sitting behind and trying to uh, create stories. And so it was great to you know evolve from there into a writer um, and then as a director and then use that war chest of knowledge to be able to do a movie like Angel Has Fallen, you know, where I can take my sensibilities of storytelling, but then my action background and then infuse them together and hopefully make a movie that is a big summer action spectacle, but is not mindless action. It has something to say and it's got complex characters and characters that we relate to in it. And so that we're emotionally gripped in the ride, but we also are having a kick-ass time, you know, 
um, as we as we witness what Mike Banning's about. Sure. And so I can safely assume that you are somebody who believes that uh, a a stunt Oscar is something long deserved. Yeah, you're the second person who's asked me that question <laughs> on this one, and, and it's it's an interesting one. Um, my my take on it, because I try not to get involved in all this stuff sure, too much, in my own opinion on things. But I do think that it's a pretty easy thing to say that if every single category on a film set is has an Oscar, um, why the hell wouldn't a stunt um, a coordinator have an Oscar too? Uh, hey, will it ever happen? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's a. I think the Academy is a broken system right now that is going to have to reinvent itself, um, mm-hmm. um, and maybe other things go away. But you know, when you have when you have makeup, costume, visual effects, special effects, sound, sound editing. When you have every single category except um, the one, pl- the, um, the one department that has a lot to do with the movie, that, that I think there's something wrong with that. Hey, fair enough. When uh, tell me about getting involved in the Fallen franchise. Gerard Butler and I have known each other for uh, quite a long time and um, had been wanting to work together, and we talked about a number of things, and then. You know, out of the blue, I get this call from him, and he's like, "Well, he goes, how would you like to come in to um, and do the third installment of the of this uh, of our Has Fallen franchise?" And he said, "Let me pitch you what I want to do because I don't want to make um, the same type of film. I want to kind of take a new direction with it, but bring the action spectacle and the fun and excitement of the first two, and then infuse something new into it and bring my voice, you know, as a filmmaker, into the fold." and that was music to my ears. It was a way that we decided that the first two movies were about an event, right? So the first one was about the taking of the White House, Olympus Has Fallen. Yeah. The second movie is about assassinating the world leaders in London. Mm-hmm. And this time to not make it about an event, but actually make it about the man, Mike Banning, and have an exploration of characters so that if you're a huge fan of the first two movies and you've been on that ride, that this can feel like an origin story of Mike Banning for you, that you can learn who he is and what makes him tick, the hardships that he's going through, and, and, and be on that journey with him. But if you hadn't seen the first two movies, it could be a great entry point into the franchise. That totally. You can actually watch this movie first and really understand who the characters are, and then you could go back and visit Olympus and London and have a kick-ass ride with those. You know, so I felt like it was a way to, to, to really put my stamp on this as a filmmaker, um, bring my two worlds together. You know, I've been known to, to make much more dramatic films uh-huh. um, as of recent, and I come from this big action um, b- background. I mean, I lived and worked in the 80s and the 90s um, through the Lethal Weapons and the Diehards and all the big action stuff. So it was really fun for me to kind of flex um, both muscles again, you know, to bring big action, the big action spectacle things, but do the action in a way that um, I want is to not have you sit in the theater and watch something on a screen and not feel attached to it. You just, you know, you're more of a voyeur just watching blow up on a screen, uh-huh. but actually be a participant in the action to actually know what it felt like when I was doing stunts, what it felt like to be in the action to what the adrenaline rush was, where the fear came from, what the point of view felt like, you know, in a, in a car chase or things blowing up in your face. And so hopefully I bring that to the table um, in, in the action um, ride and then also emotionally root you into the movie in a way where you're empathetic and with these characters and feeling the drama and the weight that they are and, you know, try to spin some relevancy into the movie. You know, put hot topic buttons and issues into the movie where we're not trying to give you our point of view or our opinion, but lay them all out there to where you feel like you don't have a, uh, um, a mindless, dumbed-down, plotted movie, but a movie that's relevant, has something to say, 
and it's a big kick-ass ride at the same time. Yeah. So hopefully we achieve that. Yeah, and not not getting into spoiler territory, but I thought the opening was extremely effective. Uh, that you know, with um, you know, putting you into the combat situation that oh, cool. yeah. sort of dumps dumps you in, but uh, and then you know reveals itself later as as a nice entry point into where his head is, even in this you know comparatively controlled situation. Yeah, one of the thrusts that I wanted the film to be about, and Jerry and I talked about it, and he flipped, you know, about the idea of it. You know, what I love about Jerry is he's very attached into his emotions and his his vulnerabilities as a man, knowing that actually is what makes us masculine, that we can understand who we are in a a three-dimensional way and that we don't have to, we can show our flaws and be mortal, right? And we thought, what a great way to really show the flaws and the vulnerabilities of, of a warrior. And I had made a documentary called That Which I Love Destroys Me about a Delta Force operator who was blown up in battle after hundreds upon hundreds of missions. Uh, this is all post 9-11. Uh-huh. And when he got home, he realized that he was going through a very different version of post-traumatic stress than, than has ever been seen in, um, in history. His version was called the lack of traumatic stress. It's what he, he coined the phrase. It's the idea that he was addicted to the fight. He was addicted to the adrenaline rush of war because that's what his brain was wired to now. So the comma society didn't work. And I thought, what an interesting way to put that into a character like Mike Banning, who is the number one protector of, of, of the president. Um, the addiction to that must be the adrenaline rush, the sense of duty and honor. Think about professional athletes. They do everything they possibly can to stay on that field, to stay in the game, you know, mm-hmm. no matter what tricks they're doing to their body, getting into the painkillers, anything that it possibly takes to not, you know, to, to, to ward off the, uh, the sense of retirement. Not ha- why not have Mike Banning in that mode, who was an Army Ranger, you know, was in the war, um, came home, where, where do you go? You go into law enforcement, became a Secret Service agent, yeah. worked his way all the way up through the ranks and to where we meet him, and he doesn't want to give up that gun on his hip. This is all he's known. And, you know, in retirement's a very scary place. I thought it's a really interesting um, way to relate to this character, humanize him in a way that you understand his mortality, and it represents our own mortality and who we are um, and the things that we face growing old in this world. And, you know, when we, people think that we can't do the job anymore, you know, we all are going to face these kind of things. And, and also parallel it with a guy that he was in war with, of Wade Jennings that Danny Houston plays, that, that he realizes he's dealing with the same type of war addiction. You know, once, yeah. uh, once you turn somebody into a lion, they are a lion for life. They don't go back right. to being a domestic house cat. And then it was fun to juxtapose that with the, with the Nick Nolte character, and that was an idea that Jerry and I came up with is, why don't we meet, you know, as we're discovering more about Mike Banning, let's find out where he came from, and let's find out the estrangement of a father that he hasn't seen in many, many years. And so you meet a guy that went through um, the Vietnam War, um, had seen the struggle, the trauma of war, and did everything he could to get away from it, you know, to the point of um, abandoning his family and hiding in a dark hole. And... So when he meets his son, he sees the same trauma um, in his son's eyes, but much to his chagrin, he realizes he's the antithesis, that his son is not trying to get away from war. His son's trying to get, um, is to stay relevant and stay in it. Yeah. And I thought that was a, it was a way to have different generations um, relate to this, so that the, the older generation that can come see a big action movie like this in the summer and have a big kick-ass ride. And we just were in Washington, D.C., and, you know, we, and we had a great um, reaction of the older generation that watched the movie and felt like, again, they were getting something relevant and had something to say. Um, a lot of them related to the, to the struggles of Clay and had a good laugh with it at the same time and the levity that comes with that. 
but also understand the relevancy of, of Mike Banning and, and where, where we're at today as a, as a world. The, the, the war addiction stuff makes a lot of sense in that it dovetails really nicely with the plot involving the contractors when you get these guys that do a couple of tours and then they get out but they're still, as you said, addicted to the rush, that's where they're going to end up is yeah. in law enforcement or in private security. And, you know, to get to get back on the field of battle however they can. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, again, I, I don't try to cast my opinion in my films, but I think you would have to be um, tone deaf to not understand that um, I am very much a supporter of our military community, of our men and women of uniform, our first responders of law enforcement. I'm sitting in Washington, D.C., screening this movie, and I'm, you know, watching the news and praying for, you know, officers in Philadelphia who are gunned down. You know, there's, there, it's a very dangerous world we live in, and I don't take lightly or for granted um, the sense of duty and sacrifice. Um, Mickey Nelson is my technical advisor on this movie. He's the first, uh, he didn't do the first two movies. I brought him in on this one. He had guarded the last four presidents all the way through Obama, you know, and I had him come into the movie and talk to Jerry and talk to everybody involved about what it's like, you know, what that sense of duty and honor means, you know, um, how you're not, um, you, you don't care who you're guarding, you don't, you, um, you, um, you're, you're um, immune to the politics of it because your duty is to, to take care of whoever it is, you know, and, 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 and be there for them. And, you know, that the sense of sacrifice that a Secret Service agent would have. We talked about the uh, the, the agent that had climbed on the uh, car after JFK was shot, you know, on the back yeah. of it, you know, and we talked about the, the scene in the movie, um, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but when, you know, there's an agent that we meet that actually throws the president in the water because he realizes these drones are using facial recognition and sacrifices himself so that, yeah. take, that the drones will take him out. I wanted to show that that, that, that is what we're, we're not dealing with robots. We're dealing with real people that have families that have have um, much to live for, but are still um, selfless in their sacrifice and their duty and honor. So there's no question that I um, have a very strong um, view um, and support um, our men and women in uniform all around the world. But hopefully we, we do it in a way that you can take all the hot-button issues, you know, have, feel like we did something relevant. It wasn't dumbed down. It wasn't mindless. But you're having a big kick-ass ride at the same time. Absolutely. So what are you working on now? Well, you know, Jerry and I really hit it off. You know, you never know if you're going to have the chemistry as collaborators or not. And um, we just got it from day one. And the minute we were rapping on Angel, we were already talking about, well, God, what can we do again together? Because it just worked. You know, we um, um, he is uh, he is such a tremendous actor, um, and he's not afraid to take these risks, you know, that I want to take, you know, and show the complexity of character and show their flaws and their vulnerabilities. And so we had come across this script called Greenland, you know, which is very much like a quiet place or World War Z or World of the Worlds, but it's about a comet that's going to go by the Earth, and everybody thinks it's going to be this great Super Bowl party until they realize it's a belt of comets um, that are fragmented, and they start entering the Earth's atmosphere and start hitting, and that there are planet killers behind it. And um, we set up that the, um, that Jerry's family, um, with Marina Baccarin, who plays his wife, have been selected for shelter relocation, um, but they're only one of, you know, a handful of people in the, United, in the world or the United States that were selected. And it's all about how humanity would act, you know, um, what would we be capable of? Would good people do bad things and would bad people do good things? And what would you do to protect your family? So 
it was a way to do the disaster film, but do it from the inside out, which I think you probably see with Angel Has Fallen, too. It's a way to do an action movie, but from the inside out. Do it from character, do it from an internal, intimate point of view, but give you the spectacle at the same time. So we just took on the disaster movie version as well, and um, I'm really excited. We actually just finished filming it on Monday night in Atlanta, Georgia, um, starting post-production now. Hopefully I'll be seeing you in um, Austin here pretty quick. And uh, But we're, we're really excited about it. What are Good. a few of your favorite Austin things? The, the sense of community. Um, that's by far my favorite thing of Austin, is mm. that you, there's a sense of community that even as that town grows, and yeah, we're going through our growing pains. Um, I just filmed in Atlanta, Georgia for five months, and you know you really feel it there, right? The sure. influx. But there's not that sense of community the way that Austin has, and yeah, I'm, I'm definitely biased. You know, home is home. But it's the idea that um, everybody kind of pitches in and, and works together and, you know, and, and has a sense of community. That's by far my most favorite part of it. And I also think that it's interesting that we're in the capital of um, a very politically charged state, but it doesn't become a political place to live. Um, sure. Everybody lives in unity together in unison. And, yeah, we all have our points of view. And, you know, I, I, I've lived next door the, to, to um, the lobbyists of major um, sides of political parties. Mm-hmm. And borrow his ladder, and now he'll give. I'll give him what I need, you know. And I love that part. Of it. I love that everybody kind of, you know. It, it it's the interesting thing, I guess, is it's not only the sense of community, but you know, being in England last year and then looking at the our country um, through a different lens. You know, the world is in a very divisive place right now of division and you know hyper identity. And what I love about Austin is it kind of strips that a lot away mm-hmm. and um, tries to keep the fact that we're all we're all going to bleed the same. Um, you know, as the as the as the as the number one barometer to, to you know to, to be to be civil to each other. Yeah, absolutely. Do you do post stuff in Austin? Do I do post? Yes, yeah. I do my director's cut at home. I'm in Austin, um, and try to do as much more as I possibly can to stay there, and then usually end up finishing the mix and the and the DI and so forth of wherever we're finalizing the film. In this in, in this case, Angel Has Fallen was finaled in London, England, um, and um, Greenland will be done in Los Angeles, but. Hopefully I can do what Robert Rodriguez does soon and have everything done at home because I would never want to leave. Outstanding. Thank you so much for your time, Rick. I really appreciate it. Thanks, bud. Bye. That's our show. Thanks for listening and thanks to our sponsor, Copenhagen Furniture. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is a production of the features staff at the Austin American Statesman. This episode was produced by Alyssa Vidalis. Our theme music is from local band Hard Proof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find everything you'd ever want to know about this show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch us an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your time avoiding 104-degree weather. Until next week, we'll see you sweating profusely.
Since 1993, Copenhagen Modern Furniture has showcased Austin's largest collection of fine contemporary furniture and accessories. We have you covered for your holiday dinner parties. Now at Copenhagen, get 25% off up to eight dining chairs with your purchase of a new dining table. For more ways to save, visit our showroom on Breaker Lane or go to copenhagenliving.com. Copenhagen Modern Furniture, Austin's premier destination for everything contemporary.